The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study in First John this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word. When we are in fellowship, then God the Holy Spirit is working in us to, to fill us with doctrine, known as the filling of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who enables us to understand it, to be able to store it in our souls and to recall it and apply it when necessary. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we will begin. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege to study your word, that you have told us not only how to have an eternal relationship with you, but how to maintain our temporal fellowship, that even though we continue to sin and we commit sin, that you have given us a grace provision for recovering from failure, and that this is based, as our salvation is, on the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Now, John wrote this epistle to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area of Asia Minor in order to teach them how to maintain their fellowship with God. They were suffering a problem at that time in the early church, and there were teachers that were coming out of the churches. These were believers who had gotten caught up with the, some ideas and concepts that were being taught that had their roots in the secular philosophy of Platonism, Neoplatonism. And some of the early ideas that later came together as Gnosticism. Gnosticism really doesn't develop for another 75 years, but many of the ideas were still present at that time. And one of these ideas was that there's a distinction between that which is material and that which is spiritual. That which is material is necessarily evil and sinful, and that which is spiritual is, is not. And it never really sins. And so there's a denial of real Sin. As a result of that, they also denied the physical incarnation of Christ. It was just an appearance. From the Greek word dokeo, they were called docetists, uh, those who just believed that Christ had, it was sort of an apparition of the uh, Son of God. He never, he didn't have a physical, true humanity, a, a truly human body. So this is an assault, not only on salvation, because if he, Christ was not truly human, he would, could not have died as our substitute, but also for the spiritual life. Because the spiritual life is, was, for the church age, was modeled for us in Jesus Christ. He lived his life based on the power of the God, the Holy Spirit. And he modeled for us the principles of the spiritual life as a man. Scripture teaches that as a man, he, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered, the writer of Hebrews tells us. 
And so if, if Jesus was not truly human, but just an apparition, then that's an assault not only on salvation, but also on the, the spiritual life and being able to uh, live the kind of abundant life that Christ had promised to us. Now, we saw that John had to deal with aspects of that in the first four verses in the beginning of the introduction. There's really almost a two- or three-part introduction. He doesn't get to the main body of this epistle until you get down to chapter 2, verse 12. And so there's two or three parts to the introduction. That may make some of you think about how I go into some subject sometimes with two or three or four parts of an introduction before I finally get there. But that's what he's doing. He's laying the foundation for the introduction in the first four verses. And in the second section from verse 5, chapter 1, down through 2, 2, he is dealing with the problem of sin and how sin interrupts the believer's fellowship and what the divine solution is. And he starts off in verse 5 with the starting point as the character of God. If we're going to understand anything about fellowship, We're going to understand what it is to have an ongoing relationship with God as part of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And if we're going to understand what happens when we sin, then the starting point is the character of God. This is something that often is overlooked in the uh, exegesis or study of this section, is that he lays down this principle in verse 5 that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So the starting point then is with the character of God, specifically looking at his righteousness, his justice, and his love. On the overhead, I've scaled back the attributes of God, his sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and veracity and immutability. I'm focusing on three characteristics, his righteousness, his justice, and his love, as comprising the core part of what John refers to as God is light. Light emphasizes purity. God, light emphasizes the absence of sin. Light emphasizes the perfection of God. And, of course, all of his attributes are perfect. But this emphasizes his righteousness as the absolute standard of God's character, the absolute norms and standards in the character of God. His... Um, The justice emphasizes the application of that. The love indicates the motivation of his character toward his creatures. Now, the light of his character then is uh, displayed or revealed to man. That's the purpose of this spotlight type of image that I have here, is that it is the character of God that results in the illumination of, of man, It is the light of his character that illuminates man in terms of divine revelation. So that light is not only used in the scriptures to refer to the essence of God, his righteousness and his justice, but also the word of God. The word of God reveals who God is and reveals his standards, reveals his character to us reveals the fact that man is a sinner and has fallen short of the character of God and that God has provided a perfect solution to man's problem of falling short of his character. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because more often than not, 99.9% of the time, when you hear somebody exegete or teach 1 John 1, and this is a, a, a battlefield chapter, by the way, as to just what it means, you hear somebody teach this that they'll instantly shift when they get to verse six and it talks and seven talking where it talks about walking in the light as that's the believer that's walking in light of God's word, walking consistent with God's word, and they totally divorce that from the character of God. But it is the word of God that reveals the character of God. I just want to drill that into you. The word of God is what reveals who God is what his character is, and what his norms and standards are. So to walk consistent with the Scripture is to walk consistent with God's character. You can't separate the two. 
And what happens 99.9% of the time is you hear somebody say, well, walking the light just means walking consistent with the Word, and they never develop it, never goes beyond that. And as a result of that, they miss the significance and the application of this whole chapter in terms of the believer's recovery from sin. So, the, and the other problem is that a lot of people want to take this as talking about salvation, and it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about walking in the light of what God has revealed about himself, his norms, his standards, his absolutes, and we have to walk consistent with his character or we cannot have fellowship with him. God cannot have fellowship with a creature that falls short of his righteousness. And what happens is that at the instant of salvation, we are in, receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. So our eternal relationship is our eternal relationship is based on what Christ did in the imputation of his righteousness, and so we have to make a distinction between our eternal relationship and our temporal fellowship. And the circle on the left indicates our position in Christ. We have to maintain a distinction between positional realities, which is static. We're in Christ. That's our position. And our temporal day-to-day experience. That's where we get the phrase, why we emphasize the phrase walking. That indicates movement. That's our progress in the spiritual life. So let's pick up the context here. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So that establishes the fact that God cannot have fellowship with sin, with darkness. Darkness represents sin. It represents all that comes from the sin nature, which includes human good, and therefore it includes all of Satan's cosmic system. Now, in order to teach this principle, John is going to focus on some of the claims that perhaps were coming out of these false teachers, that somehow they could live a life of sin, a life of immorality, a life of uh, flagrant overt sin, and it not affect their relationship with God whatsoever because they had drawn this dichotomy between the material and the spiritual. They were saying that, well, in my spiritual side, and you hear this today, Mark my word, you're going to hear this this next week. I, I, I don't know where this came from, but you'll hear television preachers and evangelists and people talk about the spiritual man and the natural man. I heard somebody this last week say, well, when you die, the body goes in the grave and then your spiritual man goes to heaven. Well, that, that's almost a Gnostic concept. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about it that way. And there's no such uh, way, way of expression in the Scriptures. We have a human spirit and a human soul, and that works together, but they're not, it's not like the soul man and the spiritual man. That's, that's almost a Gnostic form of expression in and of itself. What they were claiming was that in the physical material body, of course it's going to sin because the material body's sinful. But in terms of the, the spiritual part of life, their immaterial soul, that was not spiritual. So whatever they did spiritually, that was not sin, and so that was never tainted by sin. But so they, whatever they did in the body, well, that was always going to be sinful anyway, so why exercise any kind of moral restraint on your physical activities? Just pure antinomianism, licentiousness. Just They could give vent to every lust pattern in their sin nature, and it wouldn't matter because uh, the, the material body had nothing to do with the spiritual body. That was part of this uh, early Gnostic type of thinking, is that you could make this sort of dichotomy between the material and the spiritual. And so uh, John is going to express five different uh, possibilities, suppositions. They're called hypothetical conditions in, in the Greek to express these different statements that can be made. And really, you can boil it down to two basic scenarios. Verse 6 and 7 is the person who denies that, uh, that uh, sin affects his relationship with God at all. And there are many believers who teach that today, that because Christ died on the cross for your sins and your sins are paid for, it really doesn't matter what you do. 
you can go out and you can uh, uh, live with some woman or you can have criminality or you can have mental attitude sins, you can be arrogant, but you don't ever have to confess your sins because they were already paid for by Christ on the cross, so it really doesn't matter what you do, it's already paid for, so don't worry about sin. And they'll call that grace. That's not grace, that's licentiousness. That is antinomianism. That is using grace as a license to sin. Grace is a means of recovery from sin. And there's a tremendous difference. Grace doesn't mean that we get away with sin and there's no consequences. And this is what John has to address. And so he begins, verse 6, as he does each of these, with an if clause. Notice we have... Verse 6 begins, if we say. Verse 7 begins, if we walk. You ought to circle these ifs in your Bible. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. And verse 10, if we say. Now, in English, there's only one way to express a supposition or a condition. It's called a conditional clause whenever we use the word if. And uh, in Greek, there are really five different ways of expressing conditional clauses, although the fifth is not found in the uh, Greek New Testament. The first is called a first-class condition. In the Greek, this is always indicated, the sentence always begins with a Greek word, a, e, i. And then the verb that follows that is always going to be a verb in the indicative mood. That's in the first clause, which is called a protasis. Pro meaning before or first. So the first clause, the protasis, has an A in it with an indicative mood verb. And the second clause, sometimes we say if this happens, then that. So the second clause, the then clause, is called the apotasis. And in the then clause, you can have a verb in, I'll just put an X there, for any mood or any tense. And what this means is there is an assumption of truth to the if clause. It could be translated if, and this is true, but sometimes a debater would use this to simply mean if, and I'm going to assume it's to be true for the sake of argument, then this would follow. So, sometimes this can be translated since, but not always. It would be wrong to say that's, that's a universal, but sometimes it can be translated since. Um, it has the idea if and it's assumed to be true. And this is called a first-class condition. Second-class condition also begins with the particle A, but second-class condition has a... Um, Indicative verb, but it has an aorist or an imperfect verb in the apotesis. So you can always tell that if it's followed with an aorist or imperfect verb, that you have a second-class condition. Uh, second-class condition, and this is—it's assumed to be um, true, though it's contrary to fact. Or you could translate it if, and it's not true. So the first one you might say if and it's true. Second class, if and it's not true. Third class condition, you have, it's, the sentence starts off with an aon, E-A-N, plus a verb in the subjunctive. And then in the protasis, you can have any mood or any tense. And this is your tr- what we would call a true condition or general condition that something, sometimes it's expre- it can indicate what will most likely occur but it also indicates what could occur, what could possibly occur. And so we could translate this if, and maybe it will go this way, or maybe it will go that way. That's sort of the true condition. Fourth class condition indicates if, and I wish it were true, and that is only found a couple of times in the New Testament, so we don't need to worry about that in relationship to what we are studying. So in all of these verses, you have five third class conditions. So John is saying, if and it's possible, if and maybe you will say this, maybe you won't. If maybe you will walk in the light, maybe you won't. See, it adds that sense of potential. Maybe you won't walk in the light. So he's talking about himself, the we is talking about himself, if I walk in the light. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. 
Now, this is important. I can't tell you how many people are going around trying to say that this is talking about an an unbeliever in verse 6 and a believer in verse 7. But first of all, we recognize that the we refers to John first and the apostles second as part of the group writing. He's writing, as it were, from the basis of the apostolic group. So we can translate this like an epistolary I. If I say that I have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, then I lie and I don't practice the truth. But it's possible. That third class condition indicates that it's possible for John, even an apostle, to walk in darkness and to not practice the truth. Now we're going to have to do some exegesis here to find out exactly what these words mean. So first of all, it starts off with a third class condition plus a the verb, the aorist, or the, excuse me, if we say the aorist active subjunctive of lego, meaning to say, to state, or to claim. And since it's an epistolary we here, we could translate it just to make sure we understand the sense here. If I claim, okay, so if you're a believer and you claim, make a certain claim, that you have fellowship. Okay, starts off, if we say. That's followed in the Greek by a hati, which indicates direct or indirect discourse. So you could almost take the that out. In many places in the New Testament, they translate the hati as a that, but it, they don't have quotation marks in Greek. Like we have a sentence, if we were to write this in English, I think the best translation, if I say comma quote, I have no I have fellowship with him. It's a it's the way to indicate direct discourse, a direct quote, is just to use this word hati. So we would we would translate this if we say, comma, quote, we have fellowship with him, period, close quote. So if we make a certain claim, and that claim is to have fellowship with God. Now the word for have is the word is the present active indicative of echo, which means to have, to enjoy, to possess something as a present reality. So if I claim to possess fellowship with God as a present reality, now we have to define fellowship. One of those words that is, that is always bandied about in Christian circles, but nobody really takes the time to figure out what it means. Fellowship is not social interaction. Fellowship is not sitting around and singing a lot of your favorite songs and uh, hymns to, to God and, and then having coffee and donuts afterwards. Fellowship is from the Greek word koinonia, which means communion, association, partnership, sharing something with someone in a close mutual association. Now, this word can emphasize either the giving or the receiving end of that association. I want to emphasize the concept of association and partnership here. And this word can emphasize either the giving or the receiving end. So in some passages, it talks about giving. It talks about the contribution that the believers in the churches in Achaia made to the to the. Uh, church in Jerusalem. It's talking about the gift that they gave. So koinonia is used to talk about their contribution because they were going to share what God had provided them materially and financially with the believers in this other church because in Jerusalem at that time they were going through a famine, they were going through some difficult times. And so one church had taken Paul, when he went from church to church, took up a collection to take with him back to Jerusalem in order to help them with their financial needs. So in that point, it had to do with giving, the giving end of that association. But here it's talking about the receiving end of this association. We have an association with God. That's what fellowship is. If we claim to have an intimate rapport or association or partnership with God, where we're on the receiving end of His sanctification uh, blessing and His sanctification work in our lives and yet walk in the darkness. So what this is talking about here is if we claim fellowship with God. Now, what is fellowship with God? It is more than just having a, a, um, 
just being in a status, but it's enjoying something, it's having something. Echo indicates having, not just being in fellowship as a state, but enjoying the benefits of being in that close association. It is an association in which we receive something. What are we receiving? We are receiving, we're the beneficiaries of the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the spiritual life in the church age is based on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now God the Holy Spirit has several ministries involved in our salvation. There we were baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, where we were entered into union with Jesus Christ by means of the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are, at the instant of salvation, indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit gave us spiritual Gave, gives spiritual gifts to believers at the instant of salvation. These are salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. But then there is His sanctification ministry, which is related to the filling of the Holy Spirit, and Galatians calls it walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And I want to emphasize the walking, because that picture is of movement, of progress, of motion. Whereas being in fellowship or or being baptized with the Holy Spirit, being in Christ, our position is simply talking about a status, a position. Whereas walking talks about movement, progress, growth. So there is a difference. So walking is not the same thing as being in Christ. And we must maintain that distinction between positional truth and experiential truth. The positional reality is we're in Christ. We have perfect righteousness in Christ because it was imputed to us at the instant of salvation. But the experiential reality is different. We sin. And when we sin, we violate the righteous standard of God. We're no longer correctly adjusted to the justice of God. And as a result of that, we are going to be the objects of divine discipline. When we sin and we violate the righteous standard of God, we grieve the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, and we quench the Holy Spirit. So that means not that these salvation ministries stop. He's still active in in our lives in terms of what He did. He still continues the sealing. We're still indwelt. We still have our spiritual gifts. We are still in Christ. Those ministries never end. They never stop. They are permanent. But when we sin and we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, that relates to His sanctification ministry. His sanctification ministry. He is the one who produces spiritual growth and the character of Jesus Christ, known as the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23. It is the Holy Spirit who produces that, but when we, grieve, when we sin and we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, it shuts down that sanctifying ministry. And instead of being the beneficiaries of His sanctifying ministry, we become the recipients then of divine discipline and the Holy Spirit working to uh, get us to confess our sins and to recover so that we can recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit so that we can advance in the spiritual life. Now, the claim is made, by, by John says, if I claim to have this partnership with him where, God, where he is, the Holy Spirit is actively working, sanctifying in my life, and I walk in darkness. Walking is movement. It's lifestyle. Walking is a picture of a lifestyle. Walk in the darkness. What does that mean to walk in the darkness? Well, it's, the darkness is a term that refers to the domain of Satan. 
Walking, as I've said, is a verb of motion and movement. And it's not a, this isn't something that's static. It has to do with our life, our volition, our decisions, our moment by moment decisions. What happens is that at some moment, let me move through this overhead. We are filled by the Spirit, but at some instant, we quit walking by the Spirit, by a volitional decision, and we sin. There's some temptation, and we choose to sin. Galatians 5.16 says that we um, are to walk by means of the Spirit, and we will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. So when we choose to sin, we are out of fellowship. We're no longer walking in the light. Galatians 5 says, we are walking in darkness. We are under the power of the sin nature. Now, the sin nature produces sin. So, the first way we get out of fellowship is we sin. That's the only way we can get out of fellowship is we commit a sin. It's either a known sin or an unknown sin, but we commit a sin. Now, some people worry, say, what if I'm out of fellowship and I don't know it? Well, once you get out of fellowship, your sin nature is now activated and you are going to commit a known sin very soon. Three, four, five seconds will go by and you will commit a known sin. So don't worry about the fact that that hours or days might go by when you're unaware of the fact that you're out of fellowship because you've committed some unknown sin. Just think about the fact that arrogance is one of the worst of all sins and uh, most of us can uh, confess arrogance at almost any point in our lives and uh, get back in fellowship. So once we're out of fellowship, we are under the control of the sin nature and we are either going to produce sin from the area of weakness or we're going to produce human good from the area of strength. We're going to be motivated by our lust patterns, power lust, approbation lust, sex lust, money lust, materialism lust, chemical lust, uh, whatever it might be, whatever your favorite flavor of lust is this month, that's the one that's going to be motivating you. And that's going to drive you in one of two directions depending on your trend and what trend you want to follow. You're either going to trend towards asceticism and self-righteousness and legalism or you're going to trend in the opposite direction towards antinomianism. Now, if your trend is towards antinomianism, then it's pretty easy for you to tell that you're out of fellowship. I mean, it's pretty clear once we begin to commit certain overt sins that, that we are sinning. But if your trend is towards asceticism and self-righteousness, then what you like to do is cover it up under the cloak of uh, doing good. So it's a little more subtle, like the Pharisees. They were all into asceticism and self-righteousness, and it was hard to convince them that they had actually sinned. And see, that's part of the problem that we'll see with the second group down in verses 8 through 10, is that Gnostics not only produce one crowd that were into antinomian licentiousness, But there was another group of Gnostics who were the self-righteous moralists. And they thought that once they were saved, they just didn't sin anymore. They They were into some form of perfectionism. And so they denied the fact that they could sin because if you're in Christ, how in the world can you ever sin again? But that's the problem we'll run into when we get to verses 8 through 10. So the first group are denying that their sin affects their relationship with God and their conclusion is, if it doesn't affect my fellowship with God, then, then uh, why worry about whether or not I sin? And John makes it clear that, that this is fallacious reasoning. And he says, if I, if I claim that I have fellowship with God and live in the darkness, that is, my life is characterized by personal sin, human good, and the thinking of the cosmic system, then we lie. We are in self-deception. And that is typical of every human being is we don't want to face the, with honesty our own sinfulness. We don't like looking at the depravity of our own soul and the consequence and all the sin that pervades our lives. So we want to get into self-justification. That's part of arrogance. We start operating on the arrogant skills. We get into uh, uh, self-deception. And then we go into self-indulgence, and that's what they're doing. They're, it's not really a sin. It doesn't affect my relationship with God, so I'll just indulge my sin. 
I won't have to try to do the hard work of exercising any kind of self-control or self-discipline. I'll just indulge whatever it is I, I enjoy doing. And after all, Christ died for that sin, so it doesn't really matter. So they would go from self-deception into self-indulgence, and that leads to self-justification. And so they would say it's not really a sin, it doesn't hurt us, and it's really okay because Christ died for, the, died for that sin. So they move into self-justification, and the result, John says, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, what does he mean by saying we don't practice the truth? Well, the verb there is a present active indicative of poieo, which means to do or to apply. That's the way I translated it over in James chapter 2, 14 and following, when we studied that. And I think it catches the sense here. It's, it's application of the truth. What is the truth? The truth are all of the principles encapsulated in the Scriptures, which we call doctrine. I'm, we're not applying doctrine. Anywhere in our life. If we claim that we're in fellowship with Him and our life, our thinking, is dominated by mental attitude sins and personal sins, sins of the tongue, overt sins, human good and sin nature control, and I'm operating in the sphere of darkness, that is, uh, in terms of satanic thought and the cosmic system, then I am in self-deception and I am not applying doctrine. And then we have a contrast, verse 7, but, but if, maybe we will, maybe we will not, another third class condition, but if we walk in the light, once again this is movement, we go back to our diagram on the overhead, walking in the light is the experiential reality on the right side of the screen, walking in the light, it is, uh, walking in the light is, is a, uh, comparable to walking by the Spirit, walking in love, walking in truth, Paul says in, in Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, uh, and it is the same as being filled by the Spirit. They are each looking at a different dynamic of the spiritual life. And when we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit is filling our souls with the learning retention, recall of Bible doctrine. That's what the filling of the Holy Spirit relates to. We are not filled with the Spirit. He's not the content of our filling. We've gone over this many times in the past. We are filled by means of the Spirit. It is The verb is plerao plus the uh, dative of means of pneumity for spirit. It's not a, Content is always expressed in Greek with a genitive. So if you're going to talk about filling up my... Uh, cup with coffee, where the content of the filling is coffee, you, if you were speaking Greek, you would have to express that by using a genitive. genitive. A genitive would tell us that we're talking about what you're filled with, the content of the filling. But a dative tells you the means, the instrument. And so there it's expressing that we're filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Well, what are you filled with? Well, that's expressed by the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the reason we know that is that in Colossians 3.17 and following, the consequences of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you are the same results that follow Ephesians 5.19 and following. So if you have one action in Ephesians that gets a certain result, and you have another action in Colossians that gets the same result, then you can put those two actions together as complementary. So we're filled by means of the Spirit with the Word of Christ. And that's the mechanics for our walking in the light. And the light refers to the revelation of God, which is doctrine, which reveals His character and His norms and standards and policies and procedures and plans for the spiritual life. So you see how it all comes together. So John says, if, it's up to you, it's up to your volition, maybe you will choose to walk by means of the light or not, but if you walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship. This is the result. We have fellowship with one another. And he's already said our, our fellowship is with God. Back in verse 3, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, if we walk in the light, 
We're in fellowship with the apostles in doctrine. We're participating in that doctrine. We're sharing in their doctrine. We're participating in the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, because we're in right relationship with God. And if we're in fellowship with the apostles and they're in fellowship with God, then we're in fellowship with God. That's the argument. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, we have already studied this in detail. The term blood of Christ refers to the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. The term blood of Christ does not refer to his physical blood, but refers to his work, his atoning work on the cross, which was not his physical death at all, but was his spiritual death. The penalty for sin is spiritual death. And so to pay the penalty for sin, Christ had to die spiritually. He had to be judicially separated from the Father. So when he was on the cross, God the Father poured out on him every single sin in human history. And during that time, the righteousness of God was being violated by the fact now that Christ had imputed sin. And so the justice of God was condemning Christ, and he bore in his body on the cross, Scripture says, our sin. He carried our sin. So he paid the penalty, and it was paid in full before he died physically. He said, the last thing he said on the cross was to die, which is the perfect tense form of teleo, meaning paid in full. It has been finished. Finished in the past with results that go on forever. So on the cross, he paid the penalty in full for our sins. Now we have to think about the fact that there are two categories of penalty in the Scriptures. Let's call them P1 and P2. P1 is the eternal Penalty for sin. The eternal penalty for sin is eternal separation from God and condemnation to the lake of fire for all eternal eternity. P2 is the temporal penalty for sin. The temporal penalty includes the natural consequences of our actions. For example, if you commit murder and you are arrested and thrown in prison, that is the natural consequence for your action. Then, on top of that, there may be divine discipline that goes beyond the natural consequence. Maybe there aren't any natural consequences. Maybe you commit sin and it just seems like you get away with it. Nevertheless, God disciplines you because of that sin. So the temporal penalties would involve the consequences the natural consequences, the law of volitional responsibility, whatsoever a man reaps, whatsoever a man sows, this, that will he also reap, but also divine discipline. Now, when we are saved and we put our faith alone in Christ alone, then that eternal penalty is paid for. That eternal penalty is paid for, and at the instant of salvation, all pre-salvation sins are forgiven. Now, the term forgiven is not a judicial term. The term forgiven is a relational term. Justified, justification is a legal term. Think about it this way. We see this confusion all the time in everyday language. Every time somebody gets arrested and they do some heinous act, especially if they're a celebrity, then you'll often hear somebody come along and say, well, I don't think they ought to be arrested, or I don't think we ought to impeach them, or I don't think we ought to throw them in prison. I forgive them. You know, they're just human. I forgive them. Well, I can forgive a murderer for committing murder, but that does not handle the legal penalty. See, that's the distinction. Forgiveness is a relational term. It's not a judicial term. And just because the penalty is paid doesn't mean that the relationship is clear. That is why when I am... The Scripture says that the basis for our cleansing is from sin is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. At the instant of salvation, 
On, well, first of all, on the cross, all sin was paid for so that sin is no longer the issue in the believer's life. Now, that means that the foundation for my entire life is the fact that Christ's substitutionary death has paid the penalty for that sin, and I am justified. Justified yesterday, today, and forever. Because I, at the point of salvation, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to me. So I possess imputed righteousness, and I am justified. My personal sins that I commit prior to salvation are forgiven. But after salvation, I commit sins, post-salvation sins. Now, those post-salvation sins, I would say, carry with them a temporal penalty, P2. So I can say that I am forgiven, let's say P1 brings forgiveness 1. We'll call that F1. That's why you have passages like Ephesians 1.18, which talk about we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which really ought to be understood as we have, we have redemption, which is the basis for forgiveness of sins. We have At redemption, we are forgiven of all pre-salvation sins. But redemption is the payment of a price. Forgiveness is the application of that. They are not synonymous. So you can't take that as an appositional phrase, which is how some people want to do that, because if it's appositional, then you don't have to confess your sins because you had forgiveness at the cross. And there's not forgiveness for post-salvation sins at the cross. Because forgiveness isn't judicial. Forgiveness is relational. The judicial was handled at the cross so that we are justified legally before God for all eternity from the moment of salvation on. But we still have a problem with post-salvation sins because we all have a sin nature. And the sin nature that you and I possess today is just as evil and wicked and just as capable of all the potential horrors that it was before we were saved. And when we commit those sins that shock us and astound our family and friends, there is still going to be forgiveness for post-salvation sins, which is F2. Notice, P1 sins, we have redemption and justified, which takes care of P1 penalty, and at, and we're at the cross, we have forgiveness one, forgiveness for pre-salvation sins. But then we have post-salvation sins, sins that affect the temporal relationship with God, and that is the second category of forgiveness that is applied to post-salvation sins which restore our ongoing fellowship with God. That's what forgiveness does. It restores that fellowship. See, I can. this also happens in terms of relationships. You have somebody goes out and commits a crime. Let's say it's a horrible crime. Somebody um, commits sexual assault on a friend of yours. And you know both parties, and you know the person who's the criminal. And so now you're angry at them, and you don't forgive them. Well, they are sentenced to jail. They go to court. They plead guilty. They are sentenced to prison. They go to prison for 10 or 15 years. They pay their penalty to society, and they come out, and they are now justified, as it were, because they've paid the penalty. You may not forgive them. You may still be angry and bitter at them and have all kinds of mental attitude sins to them. You haven't forgiven them. They are justified in the eyes of the law because they paid the penalty, but you haven't forgiven them. See, forgiveness is relational. Justification is legal. And what happens when we sin is it affects our relationship with God. It grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit so that that ongoing rapport with God whereby God through the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and maturing us and producing fruit in us and um, recalling doctrine to our minds, all of those activities of the Holy Spirit and sanctification ceases. And there has to be forgiveness of those post-salvation sins, all of them, whether they're known or unknown. And the basis is what's given there in verse 7. But that's only the basis, which is the substitutionary death of Christ. That is what cleanses us from all sin. That relates to uh, justification at the cross. So in this first example, John deals with the people who claim that sin really doesn't impact their life. And he says, yes, it does. It breaks your fellowship. And uh, 
the solution is walking continuously in, in the light because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross and substitutionary death. But then there's another category. Uh, the category is those that deny sin. They're in self-deception and they're in a form of perfectionism. This is expressed two different ways in verse 8 and again in verse 10. Verse 8 reads, If we say, third class condition, maybe I'll make this claim, maybe not, but it's potential, I could. If I were to say that I had no sin, if we say that we have no sin, or using the epistolary I, if I say that I have no sin, then I am deceiving myself. I'm in self-deception because I still have a sin nature. And in this um In this verse, what we have is the third person plural, present, active, indicative of echo, to have, to possess, to sin. So, if if, uh, plus the negative would mean, if I claim that I have no sin, no sin at all, it's in the singular. And it doesn't just indicate no sin nature, it indicates no sin at all. I have no individual sin. And the reason I say that is because the contrast here is between the person who claims to not have sin in verse 8 and the person who admits sins, plural, in verse 9. If the sin in verse 8 is just sin nature, then that's what verse 9 would have to relate to, is just being a sinner, having a sin nature. But verse 8 is expressing an extreme condition of the person who says, I don't have one single sin in my life. Because once I was saved, I'm in Christ, all my sins are paid for, so I have no more sin. I am a spiritual man now. I have no single sin in my life. John says you're in self-deception. And doctrine isn't in you. You're ignorant of doctrine. There's no doctrine in your thinking. You're ignorant of the truth, which says that we still have a sin nature and we still commit post-salvation sins, and our post-salvation sins can be even worse than our pre-salvation sins. But in contrast to the person who denies his, that he has one single sin in his life is the believer who is advancing. This is t- par- parallel to the one who walks in the light. If we confess our sins, third class condition, maybe we will, maybe we won't. If you don't, you stay out of fellowship, you continue to walk in darkness, and you continue to uh, regress in your spiritual life. But the solution to post-salvation sins is confession. What happens when you sin after salvation? Well, it still breaks your fellowship with God. You violate His character. How much sin does it take to violate the character of God? Just a little sin? An unknown sin. Well, I didn't know it was a sin, so how could that violate God's character? Any sin violates the character of God. So what's so the fellowship is broken and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is squelched and we have to recover the fellowship with God. We have to uh, be have the filling of the Holy Spirit restored so that we can advance spiritually. So the solution is stated there. If we confess our sins, plural. John's a realist. It's not just one sin. There's going to be a complex of sins because we still sin. Now, the word translated confess is the Greek word homo legeo. I'm going to introduce you to a little etymological fallacy here. Homo legeo. Looks like that in the Greek. Rough breathing mark is transliterated in H. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O. Now, homo means the same, like in homosexual, somebody who has an attraction for the same sex. Logeo, from the verb to say or to speak. So, then you'll have somebody come along, well, this means to say the same thing or to speak the same thing. That's what's called an etymological fallacy. See, when you take two words and you combine them, they mean more than the sum of the parts. And you have to, word definition is determined by word usage. And word usage of homo legeo doesn't mean to say the same thing as. That's the kind of stuff you get from somebody who either doesn't know Greek or has one semester or maybe two semesters of Greek and is caught up in legalism. The way you understand the meaning of any word is not really even from a dictionary. Where where did they get it? 
Where did, where did Webster's get, get their definitions for English words? They went out and they listened to how people use the words. Usage determines meaning, not a definition. Not, I mean, not a dictionary. Same thing with Greek or Hebrew. You don't get the definition from, from Bauer, Arn, Gingrich, or Brown, Driver, and Briggs, or Kittle, or any of the other dictionaries. What you do, if you get past second year Greek or Hebrew, is you learn to go study usage. You go through the usage of every word in the Old Testament or every word in the New Testament, and you look at its context. How is the word used in, uh, in various contexts? And that's how you discover meaning. That's what Bauer, Art, and Gingrich did, is they went out and they studied the usage of every word. With a computer today, you can do in about three seconds what it took them several years to do. So we look at the study of homo legao, and its uh, Old Testament counterparts. And what you discover is, is, very, is illuminating, especially in the Psalms, where you have synonymous parallelism. In synonymous parallelism, we studied last year and we studied through the Psalms, is you'll have, uh, in the poetry, of, in the Hebrew poetry, they didn't rhyme words, they rhymed ideas and sentences. So one sentence will, say, will be repeated in different words, but say the same thing, in, in, in the second line, and that's, a, that's called synonymous parallelism. Well, if the word in the first verse is, I will confess my sin, and in the second verse says, to you, O God, I will acknowledge my sin, then what we learn is that the word confess means to acknowledge. Homo legato was also a legal term. In a legal courtroom, you confess crime. If you ever watch any of these law shows on TV or if you've ever been in a courtroom, there's no emotion involved in that necessarily. In fact, many times when a person is finally brought before a, a magistrate, it's been a long time since a crime was committed. They may or may not feel remorse for what they have done. And so they, uh, they have a chance to admit whether they did it or not. They can either uh, confess their guilt or confess their innocence. They may or may not feel remorse. That is not at all an issue in a courtroom. Now, when you get some kind of screwed up, subjectivistic courtroom like we have too often today, it might be an issue for some judge who's not concerned with objective law, but that would have to do with other factors later on uh, related to sentencing and punishment and that sort of thing. But confession simply means to admit or acknowledge something. It is not related to emotion. Now, that doesn't mean that you may not feel remorse or feeling remorse for sin is wrong or feeling sorry that you sinned is wrong. Sometimes that's a natural response. But that doesn't impress God. For one thing, God's omniscient and He knows you're going to do it again next week and the next week and 5,632 more times before you die. So all your protestations of sincerity and remorse, just don't cut any ice with him because he knows better. So don't try to impress God with how bad you feel about your sins. You may feel bad and you may sincerely feel bad, but it doesn't impress God. That's not the issue. The issue is admitting or acknowledging the sin. Lord, I did this. It doesn't say confess your sinfulness. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Well, great. That's not following 1 John 1, 1.9. It says confess your sins, plural. Name them, admit them, run them off in a list, identify them to God. He's not saying, Lord, he's not saying just confess the fact that you're a sinner or that you have a sin nature. We all know that. The focus is list them. If we admit or acknowledge our sins, he is faithful. This is the apotheosis. There is a necessary result. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first part of this emphasizes his character. It always goes back to the character of God. He is faithful. He's immutable. He's always going to do the same thing every time you admit your sin, even when it's the 56,783rd time that you've committed that sin. God's not going to say, I'm so tired of this. How many more times before you finally learn that it's wrong? One more time, that's it. No. God is long-suffering with us. And he is faithful and every single time he is going to do the same thing. He is going to uh, forgive us. It's related to his immutability and to his righteousness. His righteousness has set a standard. That standard is that Christ paid the penalty for that sin 
which is the basis laid down in verse 7. He paid the penalty for that sin. So when you admit your sin, what you're basically saying is, Lord, I sinned. That broke our fellowship. The Lord Christ paid the penalty for that sin 2,000 years ago. It's paid in full. And so on the basis of the fact that your righteousness was satisfied at the cross, then I, I know that I am forgiven. See, what happens is we commit some sin. It shocks us, shocks everybody else. We go through some kind of pain and misery associated with it. And now we dump on ourselves in guilt. Well, guilt is a sin. Guilt is saying, Lord, you didn't forgive me. I'm not forgiven. See, this means you confess your sins, you're forgiven, move on. Forget it. It's in the past. God says that I'm going to separate your sins as far from you as the east is from the west, and I will remember them no more. So we say, God, you're a liar, and I'm going to help you out, and I'm going to remember it tomorrow and beat myself up. I'm going to go on some kind of guilt trip and try to impress you and everybody else with how sorry I am and and go on some sort of ascetic, mystic spirituality kick. Well, all you're doing there is just feeding your own arrogance and your own sin nature, and you're going right back into carnality. Once we admit our sins, we forget it, and we move on. See, that's what this is all about. It's grace recovery, so that we can put it behind us and focus on advancing in the spiritual life, not focusing on our failures, but focusing on God's grace and His provision for us so that we can advance in the spiritual life. It's not a, 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 a license so we can say, oh, well, I'll go sin, and then I'll just confess it afterwards and God will wipe the slate clean. But it is so that when we fail, we do have a means of having the slate wiped clean so we can advance. It's not a license. It is a wonderful uh, procedure whereby we can um, receive cleansing for failure and focus on advancing and not on past failures and flaws. So God is faithful and righteous. He forgives us our sins. That it repeats the plural of sins in the first clause, which tells us that He forgives those sins that we mentioned. And He goes further than that. That's grace. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, you, between, let's say you, you went on a carnality binge for the last year. And it's been 12 months since the last time you confessed your sins to the Lord. Well, that's a tremendous number of sins to remember. I doubt that any of us could remember all the sins we committed in the last week without to mention the last year. Some folks go even longer than that. But we confess our sins, and the ones we confess, He forgives, and then He goes beyond that and He cleanses us. Katharizo has a great word, goes all the way back into the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, indicating that He wipes the slate clean. We are purified from all unrighteousness. Not just the sins we confessed, but all of them, the ones we didn't remember, the ones we didn't know were sins, the ones we didn't confess, we're forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness so that the slate is wiped clean and we are restored to fellowship and we're walking, we're filled by the Spirit, we're walking by the Spirit, we're walking in the light once again. Then verse 10 brings up the last scenario. This is the other side of the person who is divorced from reality. This person says, if we say that we have not sinned. And there you have a perfect tense verb. It's an intensive perfect indicating I, I, I am not now in the present a sinner at all. So the first guy says, I don't have any sin in my life at all. There's not one single sin. This guy's saying, no, the intensive perfect indicates the results of a past action. And that past action would be the person who claims that because he was saved, the sin nature is somehow eradicated and I no longer sin. So John here says, if we say that we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. Because God has said we're still a sinner. We still have a sin nature. We can still commit sin. And so if you claim that you are no longer a sinner, then you make God a liar and His Word is not in us. In other words, there's no doctrinal understanding of sin in you. And then he comes to verse 2 and he is going to give us the basis of what happens in heaven on the other side of confession. See, confession is what happens on our side, but what happens in the heavenly realm is related to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and His advocacy for us. And in order to get into that, we have to get into some important doctrines related to propitiation. 
in the present session of Jesus Christ, and I'll wait until next time to cover that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have a salvation that has paid the penalty for every single sin in our life. We, we pray right now that if there's anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, past, present, and future. There is no sin that we can commit that is too great for the grace of God or that was not covered at the cross. The issue, therefore, is not what sins we've committed. The issue is what we do with Jesus Christ. We can either accept His death on our behalf and trust Him for our salvation, or we can reject it. Those are the only two options. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will have eternal life. It doesn't take any prayer, any walking the aisle, raising the hand, moral uh, bargain with God. All you have to do is trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and you have eternal life. Father, we pray for those who are believers here that we will be challenged and encouraged by what we have studied this morning, that even though we fail, no matter how miserable that failure might be, there is always your grace recovery procedure so that we can have full forgiveness. The slate is wiped clean so that we can continue to advance in the spiritual life on the basis of the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.